And so St. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I told you that Paul was going to pivot, didn't I? This is the time in the Epistle of Romans where Paul changes the conversation from being one of proclamatory theology, sharing with you the law and the gospel, to now saying, it's time to get to work. The tests are over. Now begins the internship, seeing if you can take all of these things you learned and put them into practice. Back in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, Peter stood up in front of the people of Jerusalem and preached his great Pentecost sermon. He laid everything out for the people in Jerusalem, the entire gospel, what God had done for them in Jesus, despite what they had done to Jesus. And Peter concluded that sermon with these very terse words. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was then that the people turned to Peter and said, Brothers, what shall we do? And that's where we're at now in the epistle to the Romans. This is where Paul begins to answer the question that you might be asking, having heard all of these great things. Then, Brother Paul, what then shall we do? And Paul begins by talking about worship. Getting to the heart of what this Christian faith, this messianic Jewish reality, is going to look like in our life. Because if you were a Jew or a Gentile, religion is always about worship. It was about going to temple and making sacrifices, some of them of goats or pigeons or bulls, some of them sacrifices of drink offerings or other things. But now Paul says, worship is really no longer about the temple. And if it isn't about a temple and rituals and rites, what is it? What is worship? Sometimes we just do it without ever stopping to ask the question. I don't do this often, but sometimes it's good to go and look up in the dictionary just to get back to brass tacks and clear terms what worship actually is. Worship as a noun is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Worship as a verb is to show reverence and adoration for a deity and to honor them with religious rites. And this might be why religion is looked upon with such suspicion in Western cultures. Because the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity and honoring them with religious rites sounds like superstition. 
It sounds like believing in things that don't make any sense and then going through the motion of expressing those crazy ideas in an assembly in front of other people. But then along comes Paul. And Paul suggests a very different kind of worship. A spiritual worship, our translations put it, but the Greek is logikon, litreon. You heard that right. Logikon, from which we get the word logic. Logical worship. Reasonable worship. Genuine worship. Worship, in Paul's words, that makes sense. And in case you don't think that that is what Paul can possibly mean, suggesting that somehow Christian worship is going to be logical, he ties the Christian faith to our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your nose, your mind, your thinking, your brain. Now, religion has usually involved sacrifice. All religions, as people descended from Adam and Eve and then from Noah and his family spread out over the face of the earth, they brought with them this sense that we need to somehow sacrifice something to make God or the gods happy with us. The Aztecs might have taken this to the furthest extreme believing that the gods themselves sacrificed themselves to make the world. And so to keep the world going and keep the gods happy, we need to kill as many people as possible, preferably on the top of pyramids. All those beautiful pyramids in Mexico that we go and visit and climb up, 500 years ago, the people climbing up those were either the priests or people that were not going to be coming back down, at least not alive. And of course, the Old Testament also includes sacrifice. And all of that is tied back to Genesis chapter 4 that we studied on Thursday, and really even Genesis 3 with the killing of animals in order to cover Adam and Eve with skins, that there is a need for a shedding of blood in order to cover the transgressions that we have done before God. Paul doesn't get rid of sacrifice but he totally changes it. Christians are asked to sacrifice themselves, their own bodies as a living sacrifice, not on an altar in here, but sacrificing for others out there. That's why Paul talks about the importance of discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, our minds are transformed, and now we discern what is the will of God and are able to go out and do it. Okay, so what is this will of God? Well, it turns out the will of God was staring us in the face the whole time. The Ten Commandments are God's will for us. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not covet. Which Jesus summarizes as, love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor 
as yourself. Treat your enemies as your friends, Jesus says. Forgive your brother the 77 times and more that your brother comes to you or your sister or whoever else and asks for your forgiveness without hesitation. The Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, or we might call it the forgiving father, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. We could go on and on, and indeed you can go back and read the Gospels and discover for yourself the will of God. But this is what our minds are transformed to understand, that the true sacrifice, the logical worship, doesn't actually happen in here. We honor our God out there in living different lives than people that have not yet heard the gospel. Okay, so what happens in here? Why are you all here this Sunday morning? Why are you all tuning in via Zoom to listen to any of this? If this isn't worship, because I'm sure most of you would have thought that that's what you were getting up this morning to do. Well, I'm going to worship. Well, if the worship is out there, what happens in here is a reception. It's a receiving. It's not us coming together to honor God, but God coming and filling us up so that we might go outside these walls and offer ourselves as the living sacrifice. We come here on Sunday mornings, Saturday afternoons, Wednesday nights, whenever the services might be, to be filled up with the good news, with free forgiveness, with heavenly food at an altar, where God gives himself to us that we might in turn be able to go outside these walls and worship. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, Isaiah urges us this morning, and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. This is God's gift to each and every one of you. Jesus hears Peter's great confession, just as he hears our confession in the creed that we just recited. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus proclaims to Peter and to us the good news that on that confession will Jesus build his body and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We come here on Sundays to be filled up with that good news, to hear once again that God is not trying to smite us, not trying to find a way to crush us under his judgment, but rather to give us everything he has, including his one and only son, his shed blood on the cross, to announce to us that our sins have been forgiven, and through the application of those same keys given to Peter, I might announce to you the forgiveness of your sins. What happens here is reception. Once you leave those doors, you begin to worship. We use our gifts. The church, others around you will help you see what those gifts are if you don't already know. Do you know that when young men go off to seminary, 
there's a temptation to say, I'm here because I've been called to be a pastor. Our seminary professors are always clear to say to us, no, you are here to be prepared so that the Lord might call you to be a pastor. Well, I feel like I should be a pastor. And our professors say that is good and right, but the call comes from others outside of you saying, we think you should be a pastor. And the same goes for each and every one of us. If you're like, well, I don't know what gifts God's given me. I don't know what my talents are. I'm not sure that I have any. Believe me, there are those sitting around you right now or those who are around you, even if you're at home, who know your gifts better than you do. And if you're not sure what your gifts are, ask them. Pastor, what do you think God has given to me? Is, is my gift generosity? Is it service? Is it administration? Because that's how you'll find out who you are in this body we call Christ. And when we worship outside these walls, it is partly as individuals going about our lives. It's partly about our vocation, but it's also about what we do together as the body of Christ. Each member using their gifts and skills and talents together to serve our fallen world with Jesus. And behind all of this, before all of this, empowering all of this, achieving all of this, is always Christ. Because he is the head. Without a head, the body doesn't do anything. But lest we think that somehow this worship that happens as we go out and serve our neighbors, trying our best to do the will of God, is somehow our own endeavor, Paul reminds us of God's grace. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Recognize that it is Christ who is working in us as a church and in you as an individual. Worship in the world, you see, is impossible if we are not continually and constantly filled with trust in the Christ who has saved us. Otherwise, we'll despair being able to make any difference to anyone. We will see our many failures and think, what kind of a servant am I? What kind of worship am I offering? But when we are filled with Christ, we recognize that anything good that happens in our worship is happening because he lives in us by his spirit, and he is making us worshipers. In his ever-timely book, The Contemplative Pastor, very famous author Eugene Peterson quoted an ancient pastor by the name of Hilary of Tours. And Hilary of Tours describes a sin that Paul does not want us to commit as we offer our bodies in living sacrifice to our neighbor. In Latin, it's called irreligiosa solicitudo pro Deo, which you might translate into English as a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. Even the worship that we offer as we bring our bodies as living sacrifices to those who need to be cared for, who need us to wear masks, who need us to put on all this hand sanitizer, who need us to visit them, 
who need us to bring them food. Even as we do all these things, we must constantly be reminded on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever we gather together that in fact, it was always Christ who is doing those things in us. To keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves, but also to keep us from despairing that we are not up to the task. Of course we're not. That's what Romans 1 through 11 was all about. When we are called to do this worship, we are called to do it as those who have recognized that there is nothing good in them, Romans 1 and 2, who have recognized that God has given us grace in Jesus Christ, undeserved forgiveness of sins, Romans 3, who recognize that they have been killed and resurrected in baptism, Romans chapter 6, who recognize in Romans chapter 7 that we don't always do all the good we'd like to do. Our sacrifice is imperfect. But in Romans chapter 8, have heard the good news that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ and that the Spirit is always interceding for us with groans that are too deep to utter. Don't take too highly of your worship, says Paul. Because if grace is what saved you, then it's also grace that builds the church. And it is by grace that Jesus works through the church and each of every one of us. And it is grace that will work in us when we leave those doors this morning to begin our worship in offering ourselves, as Jesus did for the world, as a living sacrifice. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.